0: Okay, so, as you guys know, we've been in a series in the book of Daniel, and so far there have been two main characters in the book, right? There's been Daniel. Last week we uh, did a little segue and looked at the three friends of Daniel, but then the other primary character in the book has been uh, this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the one who seems to be in charge, in control, right? Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, he has built literally the greatest city. The world had ever known to this point in history he's also by far the richest man in the world and daniel chapter 4 is actually written from the perspective of king nebuchadnezzar this king of babylon and we're going to start in daniel 4 verse 4 and here's what he says i nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace contented and prosperous isn't that where we all want to be at home in our palace at home in our homes contented and prosperous right now let me ask you a question does nebuchadnezzar think he has a problem the answer is no, right? He's content. He's prosperous. He, he is in charge of everything he can seize. He doesn't think he has a problem. He doesn't have a care in the world. He says, I was prosperous and content. And we said a few weeks back that we gather in church on Sunday mornings and we kind of pay spiritual homage to Daniel, you know, for his spiritual courage and his spiritual fortitude and and his tenacity at following God. But it's Nebuchadnezzar's life that we chase through the week in our Monday through Saturday kind of life. That's what we all want to be, right? We want to be prosperous And we want to be content. And, you know, we can go to seminars and we we read books about how to be both content and prosperous. So Nebuchadnezzar didn't think he had a problem at all. But guess what? God thought Nebuchadnezzar had a very big problem. And that's what we're going to talk about today. God knew better. But before we get to that, I want to tell you just how prosperous Nebuchadnezzar was. Remember, he's a historical character. Babylon, the capital city of his empire, is the site of so much building under Nebuchadnezzar that it required 126 pages just to chronicle the inscriptions that were placed on all of the buildings that he constructed. 126 pages just to record the inscription that he had chiseled into all of the buildings that he built. Not only did he conquer the whole world, but then with no human, with only human labor, no no machinery, no backhoes, no cranes, no nothing, he constructed the world's most renowned city. I mean, you've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Maybe the most incredible of them is said to have been the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. That was King Nebuchadnezzar. He built those, the story goes, for his wife who was homesick for the mountains where she grew up. So he had constructed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And from his palace, from his veranda... Uh, when he walked out he could see a double wall constructed all the way around uh, the city 20 miles around Babylon and the wall was wide enough that chariots and horses could ride around on top of this wall in order to patrol and make sure the city stayed safe. I mean there was simply no place like this nothing else like it in the world in fact the greek historian herodotus here's what he wrote about king nebuchadnezzar and about babylon he said this in addition to its size babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world and nebuchadnezzar built it it was his city And it would not be there if it was not for him. So Nebuchadnezzar knows this and so does everyone else. So no wonder he walks out on his veranda and would say, hey, I was at home alone on my veranda in my palace and I was contented and I was prosperous. But in his prosperity, what we're going to see in this chapter is that Nebuchadnezzar is actually in danger you might say that Nebuchadnezzar was in grave danger his life and his legacy were at stake there was going to be a battle for his soul in the same way that God is still battling for the souls of men and women he is going to battle for the soul of Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar's life is in danger now to help us get our arms around why this was so important let me just ask you a question what do you think is the most dangerous item in your home. So if you're here with somebody, just kind of turn to them for a minute and just kind of, you know, spitball, like what do you think is the most dangerous item in your home? Go. So share that. What do you think it is? Now some of the items on this list um, are going to surprise you. Some of them are not in fact the third item on the list list is not going to surprise any of you every year 460,000 people are injured by knives knives so there's that picture that one probably doesn't surprise you at all but the next two will Uh, every year 900,000 people are injured on this rugs or carpeting throw rugs. 900,000 people a year are injured on those. But even that um, doesn't take first place. Uh, This is the most dangerous item in your home. Every year 1.2 million people are injured on one of these. But let's shake this up just a little bit. What do you think is the most dangerous room? in your house the most dangerous room anybody want to guess what do you think it is yeah that's interesting that's actually number two the most dangerous room in your house is this one the kitchen for a lot of reasons we're not going to go into why right now but you can google this and see for yourself and then the the second most dangerous room in your house is indeed the bathroom Well, what I want to do is I want to show you what I think the most dangerous room in the house is and then talk to you about why I believe that this is the most dangerous item in your house now we call this an easy chair right there's even a brand for these sometimes they're called lazy boys right but um yeah and we don't buy chairs like this right for how they look do we we buy chairs like this for how they feel for how Comfortable they are, right? So um, I'm going to ask Josiah Norton to come up. Josiah's going to help me. Would you guys uh, give Josiah some love? Sure. Wow, that was more love than I thought. That's awesome. Hey, so Josiah, go ahead and grab a seat. And listen, you have like the easiest job in the world, Josiah. Oh, <laughs> not yet, not yet. Come on, don't get ahead of me. Stay with me on this deal. Yeah, so you have the easiest job in the world. You are just going to get as comfortable as possible. Are you in? He's in. All right, great. So yeah, so go ahead and recline just a little bit for me, Josiah. Now, I have some items uh, to kind of help you get more comfortable. The first thing I'm going to need you to do, because you really can't be super comfortable with your shoes on, right? So I'm going to need you to pull your shoes off. I'll take that for you if you'd like. Sure, yeah, you're quite welcome. So, yeah, we're going to take off your shoes, and we're actually going to put some slippers on you. These are actually my wife's slippers, (laughs) and they're probably not going to fit you, but we're just going to kind of put these right over your toe just a little bit to make you uh, comfortable. Now, Josiah what are you, Vanna White now? I don't know what's going on here. Okay, good. Thank you. So, hey, Josiah, there's a type of food that people eat, you know, when they've had a hard day, a stressful day. In fact, we sometimes call this kind of food, anybody know what kind of food we're talking about? Comfort food. That's right. So, um, I went this morning and picked up a fresh donut for you. You can have that. That was freshly baked a couple days ago. So, awesome. Yeah, and, uh, and so listen, eat eat well. I'd, I'd like you to recline just a little bit. Yeah, get a little, just not totally. We want to keep you about halfway there so you can eat. But Josiah, but I mean, that's going to dry your mouth out, right? So I have another kind of comfort food for you. I have some chocolate milk here for you. And hey, would you, uh, do you like a straw? Yeah. yeah, sure. Why not, right? So yeah, Josiah, you just get us comfortable. Oh, and I do have something else. I have... Um, Just a little throw here that was probably knitted by a grandma, right? This is just like the one grandma made for you. Um, Yeah, how you feeling, man? You doing okay? Listen, how's that chocolate milk? (sighs) Now, let me ask you a question. Does Josiah look like a man about ready to spring into action to you? Does he look like a man ready to do whatever hard thing God would ask him to do? No, that's right, he does not. Does, Osiah, does Josiah look like somebody ready to stand up and save the world? Yeah, the answer would be no. In fact, Josiah looks so comfortable to me that I have my doubts about whether he could even like stay awake through the rest of the service if I just left him there. Right? In fact, some of you are sitting in far less comfortable seats than he is, and some of you aren't going to make it through the whole service without falling asleep, right? So Josiah, you're going to have to go. Yeah, your time, your time in the chair is over now listen you can take the chocolate milk and the donut with you you can take your shoes but you have to leave everything else you can't keep the slippers my (laughs) wife would kill me because they're super comfy here are your shoes hey would you guys give Josiah some love for me thank you now what is so dangerous about this chair is not the things that you do while you're in it What's so dangerous about this chair is the things that you don't do. And this was Nebuchadnezzar's seat. This is why Nebuchadnezzar was in so, so much danger, right? Because it's all the stuff you don't do when you're sitting in that chair. The people in need that you never get around to serving. The Bible that you never learn to delight in. The community that you never impact or change for the better. The desperate prayers that you never pray. The noble thoughts that you never think. The races that you never run. The battles that you never fight. The tears that you never cry. And most importantly, the people that you never serve and never love. The the reason this is so dangerous is because this can be an impediment to discipleship. And when we say around here that we want to grow radical disciples who who love and lead like Jesus, we mean it. And for some of us, this is in our way. See, this will keep you from following Jesus. This will keep you from being stretched, and it will keep you from sacrificing in his name. It will keep you from serving in his name. What's so dangerous about a chair like this isn't the things that you do while you're in it. It's all the things that you will not do, and that's why this is not a good tool for discipleship training. If you spend too much time in this, I can guarantee you, you are not growing as a disciple of Jesus. So, so, because Nebuchadnezzar is sitting in this chair, he's at home, alone. He's content. He's prosperous. And for that reason, God is going to take Nebuchadnezzar on a journey. And it will be a very long and a very painful journey for King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a, because it's a battle for his soul. And when God battles for a man's or a woman's soul, He won't stop. His love won't let him. His grace won't let him right and this journey is going to get launched with a dream jamie read a little bit about this dream for you earlier this morning and in the ancient world we've said this before we said it in daniel chapter 2 this is the second dream that daniel has interpreted for king nebuchadnezzar we said dreams were a big deal especially when they happen to a king So Daniel interprets this second dream for him and essentially he says this, you're going to lose it all. All the power, all the glory, all the wealth, all the empire, even your own capacity to reason and to think, I'm even going to take that away from you. All these things that you thought were about your own cleverness and superiority, all these things you thought were under your control and that you've earned every one of them, I'm going to take every bit of that away from you. And there's a reason for this, Daniel says, so that the living may know. In other words, so that, you, so that this would be a lesson to, to you and to me, right? That, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all of the kingdoms of the, of the earth and that he can give them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Now remember that phrase because we're going to come back to that phrase, the lowliest of people. Now I want to remind you, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has kind of a go-to phrase when somebody says something to him or does something to him that he doesn't like. It's a threat he's issued again and again and again in the book of Daniel. Essentially he says, look, I'm I'm going to cut you to pieces and I'm going to tear your house down to rubble. Uh, And so what Daniel is about to say to him, again, just takes this off the charts, tremendous courage. And it's so important to remember that, okay? So, so he goes on to say to the king, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. And don't you love that? He says, renounce your sins by doing what is right. And your wickedness, that's another word he throws in there. What he actually says to the king is he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're a wicked and an evil king. Now, I can guarantee you no advisor had ever said these words to Nebuchadnezzar because when people said things like this to Nebuchadnezzar, they died. And their families died and their homes, you get the idea, were destroyed into rubble, right? So these are, and and by the way, we know something about the story. Daniel's not saying this to King Nebuchadnezzar in hate or in contempt. In fact, I believe he's saying them out of love for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, because we know a fair amount about their story, right? So these are not words spoken in, in anger or hate. He says this, therefore renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind, a far better word would be being generous with the oppressed. It could be translated by, by giving liberally to the poor or doing justice to the poor. See, now, it's so important we get this. See, what Daniel is doing here is he's about to do some very serious meddling into King Nebuchadnezzar's bank account. And I want you to note that Daniel does not say, you know, King, you're doing good. I mean, you're powerful. You're, you're worshipped all over the world. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's working for you, right? You've amassed a fortune. Whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. And he doesn't say, hey, you know what? Just just keep doing all the same things, but just swap out your religion. Worship the name of my God instead of the names of your God. He doesn't say that. And the reason he doesn't say that is because it's far deeper than just that. Daniel is going to start messing with how much money goes into the hanging gardens and how many more layers of walls go up around Nebuchadnezzar's many palaces and homes throughout Babylon. All these homes that have Nebuchadnezzar's names on them and conscriptions on them. And he's going to ask that Nebuchadnezzar begin to take some of that money and cease using it for himself and begin to use it for people who are less fortunate and less powerful and less positioned. In other words, the very beings that he's conscripted into slavery and beaten and killed in the process, he, what, what Daniel is saying is, look, you need to be generous to those people and kind to them. You need to use some of your resources not just to benefit your own family, but to benefit people that are less fortunate than you right so this isn't just about Nebuchadnezzar changing the name of the God that he worships although it includes this this is rethink the way you treat people and the way that you use and spend your money spend your money on projects and things that benefit other people don't just spend your money on yourself or your harem or your family use the money i've given you to benefit other people the lowliest of people or else or else i'll take every bit of it away from you and god isn't subtle or obscure about this he says renounce your sins and then daniel kind of throws a little grace in there almost spoken like it's a hope a personal hope of daniel he says if you do renounce your sins if you do change your lifestyle if you do move around some of the light items of your treasury it may be that then your prosperity will continue maybe it's not too late he's saying i mean so uh is he going to do this i mean you know is it too late well it depends is nebuchadnezzar willing to listen to daniel is he willing to humble himself and admit that god is god and he is not is he willing to renounce his pride his self-centeredness with the way that he uses his time his talents and his treasures and is he willing to change the way he views people and be kind to the very people that he used to oppress is he going to be willing to bend the knee to god well it turns out not yet not yet look at the very next verse And notice the gap here. It says 12 months later. So a year later and not one thing has changed in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Uh, it says, twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, "Is is not this the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty, mighty power and the glory of my majesty?" So, hey, how do you think Nebuchadnezzar's doing on the whole humility thing? like bending the knee, admitting that God's bigger than him. He's not doing so good, is he? He's here a year later. This goes to show you something. Sometimes human beings, we, we can struggle to grow. It's hard to bend the knee because if we bend the knee, what we're essentially doing is admitting that we're not God, that he's God and we're not, and that's difficult for people. That might mean we have to, we'd have to even surrender a little control and offer that control back to him right by the way you do know don't you that control is an illusion anyway you do know that God is in control whether you give him control or not just something to think about now uh here's what we see in this story i want to back up a little bit so here we see that so far god has reasoned with nebuchadnezzar right he's um, given him an opportunity of his own free will to change his mind change his lifestyle to downsize and start investing some of his resources in other people Um, and and and, but reasoning isn't working anymore so god's going to have to go to discipline next but you know, if you're a good parent, right? You want to. Every good parent wants to reason with their children when it comes to raising, you know, grown-up, mature, adult, responsible children, right? I mean, we would all prefer to reason with our kids than to discipline them. Uh, one of my favorite newspaper columnists used to be a guy by the name of Dave Barry, and one time Dave Barry was writing a story about parenting. Here's what he said: He said, "I'm often asked about the secret." Of successful parenting and every time I am I always give the same answer the secret to being a good parent is this lower your standards just lower your standards now uh, we see this sometimes in um, in parents right Um, Have you ever noticed that uh, when parents have successive kids, their standards just get a little bit lower with each one, especially as it relates to things like hygiene, for example? So the first kid, right, with our first child, if a pacifier falls on the ground, mom's going to pick that up, she's going to put that in boiling water on the stove, she's going to sterilize the pacifier, she's going to air dry it, let it cool down before she gently Places it back in her firstborn's mouth. With the second kid, you know this, things get a little more lax, right? If the pacifier falls on the ground, she'll pick it up. She'll probably run it under some tap water, dry it off with a cloth, and kind of put it back in her child's mouth, right? But by the time, come on, you know, you're with me on this, right? By the time the third child comes along, you know what she's going to do? She's going to pick that thing off the floor, spit on it, rub it on her shirt, and stick it back in her kid's mouth right because here's why we have a way of lowering our standards when it comes to reality don't we because it was far easier to be all in on one kid than it is three and so we lower our standards as a way of coping and getting through and getting by right but listen god will not lower his standards when it comes to parenting you and me His character will not let him do that. His love will not let him do that. And so because God wouldn't lower his standards, he came lower and offered up his one and only son for you and for me. But he could never lower his standards. Uh, But the reality is sometimes reasoning with people just won't work. It's not working with Nebuchadnezzar. And I think a lot of people in our day when they think about God you know what they're kind of counting on when they think about eternity and heaven and how someone comes into a relationship with God I think they think this well I'm just hoping that God lowers his standards I hope God grades on some kind of a curve and I hope I'm the standard of that curve and so anybody who's like me or better they'll go to heaven and anybody that's like a a little less than me or less well they'll they'll go somewhere else right but i'm the standard for the curve and i really hope that god grades on that curve but the question then is well you know what's the curve I mean how much violence and how much deceit and racism and greed and bitterness do you think that God should allow into the world and do you know how people answer God when he asks that question they say well a little more greed than I have a little more bitterness than that's in me a little more deceit than I'm guilty of That's how much I think God should allow into the world, right? But listen, real love, at least God's love, righteous love, can never lower its standards about what really matters. See, God's assessment of you and me is really, really clear. Here's what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And a really important word there is all, everybody, right? That's Adolf Hitler, that's Mother Teresa, that's Donald Trump, that's Joe Biden, that's you, and that's me. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, see? And listen, the reality is, think, I mean, if you think deeply about this, if god really i mean would he be worth serving if he was willing to lower his standards the reality is none of us should want god to be willing to lower his standards because what god would he be if he was well nebuchadnezzar is now going to have to face reality he's going to have to hit uh what uh they call an AA rock bottom So he looks out at Babylon and he says, is this not the great city I built for my glory and my power? There's a lot of I and my in Nebuchadnezzar, isn't there? Just like there's a lot of I and my in you and me. So it says, The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails grew like the claws of a bird. When I hear this description, do you know who I think of? Anybody remember Howard Hughes from the 1940s? One of the one of the wealthiest men in Hollywood, and he went so just insane that like his nails grew out like i mean look look this is real this really happened this is a real person and this is exactly nebuchadnezzar ended up in exactly the same kind of place that howard hughes did right So Nebuchadnezzar once had the greatest palace in history, built the premier city in the world, the Hanging Gardens, did it all on the backs of the poor while they suffered and slaved and starved. He never saw one of those people, and now he is one of those people. He becomes a guy without a palace and without a home. And he had to have asked himself, why have I done so little for the homeless and the helpless and the poor when I could have done so much? Why did I do so little when I could have done so much? But he had to hit rock bottom to ask that question. The good news for you and me today is that we don't have to. You don't have to hit rock bottom to ask that question. Listen, we're going to talk a lot about being all in as a church in helping people who are homeless and helpless and caught up in addiction, people who have less than us, people who some of us would say are less fortunate than us and just like king nebuchadnezzar god is going to challenge us to use some of our own time and talents and treasures to to make that happen to make our community a better place to live not just a prettier place to live nebuchadnezzar focused on pretty i'm not talking about pretty when you think about a community a community is her people People are what make a community a community in the same way that people are what make church a church. I mean, all of us would say the church isn't a building, the church is a people. And a community isn't a collection of buildings, a community is a collection, a community, a pack of people that we are called to love and sacrifice for with the very best of our time and our talents and our treasure. And so Nebuchadnezzar has some wrestling to do. And the turning point for him comes when he realizes in the 34th verse of the 4th chapter of Daniel, here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. Now, you, you have to understand what he means here. When he says, I raised my eyes to heaven, he's not saying, I looked up at the sky. What he's saying is, I finally turned my heart, I finally gave my allegiance to the one that I'd been running from my whole life. Finally, I asked God to do what I could never do to forgive my sins, to give me a clean slate, and to create a clean and a new heart in me. That's what he means when he says he raised his eyes towards heaven. And that's all that God had been waiting for Nebuchadnezzar to do. God never wanted anything different than that for, for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, because our Heavenly Father, friends, men and women, always has a heart of grace grace. grace for people god is always ready to forgive god always wants to love and to lavish well daniel 4 is nebuchadnezzar's story but today guess what you and i we're writing ours today you're writing your story has there ever been a day where you looked up to heaven has there ever been a day where you said god i know I know you're it, You're a God and not me, and I'm not it. And I know you're kind and good, and I want to ask you to forgive me for my sin. I, would you accept me into your family? Would you begin to lead and guide me every single day of my life for the rest of my life? And I'll surrender to you. I'll follow to you, right? I'll just do that. See, uh, nobody makes things right between themselves and God through what I would call a performance improvement program. Now listen, it's so important to go back to Daniel. What did Daniel say to King Nebuchadnezzar? What was his message? His message was this. It was really a summarization of Torah, of Old Testament law, of the Old Covenant. Now, listen, there's a reason in our Bible that we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament is called the Old Testament because it contains something called the Old Covenant or the Old Agreement between God and man. So, Daniel speaks to King Nebuchadnezzar out of that covenant, and he essentially summarizes Torah. And the way that he summarizes Torah is he says, Look, confess your sin start to do right and do good and be generous with the poor this was a rabbinic summarization of Torah but that isn't the message that we're given as a church that, that isn't the message that we're given under the new covenant that Jesus came to bring and when people mix and match these two covenants it gets confusing because what jesus said our message is how it's different than that so basically daniel's message was this king be good be good Um, and and the message that we bring under the new covenant is this trust in jesus goodness on your behalf jesus is good so receive his goodness unto unto yourself receive his righteousness his forgiveness he died on a cross to offer the forgiveness of God and it's vital when we're in a story like this that we distinguish because otherwise people will just think that we have the same message as Daniel right well just straighten up and be good Friends, that is not, nothing could be further from the truth of that. That is not our message. Our message is Jesus was good. And He suffered and He bled and He died on our behalf so that He might offer to us the riches of God. And by all means, we should still be generous with the poor. We should still tend to the homeless and the helpless and the hapless and the addicted. We should still do all that. But our motive changes. We don't do it to get God to love us or accept us. We do it because God has already been so generous with us. We're generous with other people. Because he was first generous with us. We pour ourselves out for others because Jesus poured himself out for us. And there is a vast difference between the new covenant of God and the old covenant, the covenant that Daniel was speaking out of. And it's vital that we get that and be clear about that. All right, so here's what we're going to do. I just need to ask you, are you taking following Jesus seriously these days? Are you moving closer to him or are you moving further apart? And we would just say, look, we want you to be a disciple and a disciple has disciplines. Discipline. So what I want to do is I'm going to invite Pastor Mike to come up, and he's just going to give you an opportunity. Listen, don't let this opportunity pass you by. Don't let it slip through your fingers, because this is an opportunity to press in and grow as a disciple of Jesus. Right? So um, let's dial in. Would you guys show Mike some love this morning?